Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, anyone 18 or older living in certain COVID-19 hotspots in Ontario can now book an appointment for a vaccine shot at pharmacies. But there's still some confusion about the phrasing of the announcement. CEO of Ontario Pharmacists Association, Justin Bates, will join us to talk about that. Prime Minister Trudeau's Chief of Staff told MPs on Friday that she never informed the Prime Minister about the 2018 allegations of sexual misconduct against then-Chief of Defence Staff Jonathan Vance. So what did happen? And the Canadian Pediatric Society is calling on the Ontario government to immediately reopen outdoor recreation spaces. Court and closures have devastating effects on our children and youth. Is there really any evidence that outdoor activities are part of the problem? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is a new day and a, a new variation on the uh, the vaccination rollout program here in the province of Ontario. Uh, apparently, anybody 18 and older now living in certain COVID-19 hotspots, so Hamilton's one of those, by the way, uh, can now book an appointment for a vaccine shot. Don Kelly has details. About 80 pharmacies in Toronto and neighbouring Peel region are now offering the Pfizer-BioNTech shot, while 58 pharmacies in Durham, Hamilton, Ottawa, Windsor and York region are offering the Moderna shot. Vaccine seekers can search by postal code to find stores that are administering jabs. The province is advising everyone to book online. Ontario reported 2,864 new COVID-19 infections today and another 25 deaths. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So uh, the program continues to evolve, and uh, obviously there's a lot of concern about uh, getting that first shot. And uh, some people now asking about uh, when they're going to be able to get that second shot, which is so necessary right now. Joining us to talk about all this, and if you add some clarity to this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Justin Bates. Uh, Justin is the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, you've been <laughs> you've been in the spotlight for a long time now, the last week or so, because of the the rollout that's going there. Uh, how are your members feeling about uh, the 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 expansion? of this program right now well good morning bill it's great to be back on your program and uh, our members are feeling uh, very much uh, excited about this um, they've all along wanted to step up and uh, provide a solution and contribute to getting people vaccinated I think the introduction of mRNA vaccines into the pharmacy channel is uh, a step in the right direction and we're planning to rapidly expand this uh, throughout the next uh, three weeks to get all pharmacies uh, introduced to the mRNA vaccines. Well, let's talk about that initially, because I know when you and I talked a week or so ago, uh, there was some concern about supply and about supply chain. And at that time, it was about the AstraZeneca, and they were talking about, uh, you know, the, the supplies were running short. Uh, does the announcement about uh, the new ones, about the Moderna coming on side, uh, does that alleviate that concern? It does to a certain extent. Uh, we are expecting to be much more awash in vaccines for Pfizer and Moderna, and that's one of the reasons why we are rapidly expanding that, uh, because the supply is much less predictable for AstraZeneca. That, on top of the uh, NACI communications last week, has created some challenges uh, with respect to that vaccine. So we want to make sure that, particularly for the hardest hit areas, we offer the mRNA vaccines and eventually to all pharmacies across the province. Are, are your members hearing some of that backlash, Justin, about vaccine hesitancy now after the NACI uh, mistake I, was, I probably should label it? <laughs> yeah, good way to characterize it. Uh, and I think the best way to answer that is to say yes. Um, many uh, were feeling concerns and fearful of uh, having received the first dose. Many also were questioning whether or not they should get the second dose as part of that regimen for two-dose uh, completion to be fully immunized. Um, lots of good questions as well. I think that's part of the value of talking to a physician or a pharmacist to get uh, all the information and uh, know, you know what you need to know to make informed decisions and consent. Uh, we still maintain and, and are confident behind the efficacy and safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But that said, a lot of people now are saying, particularly in hotspots, well, I'll just wait uh, to when I can get a, a Pfizer or a Moderna shot. And, and that's one of the concerns that I think you and I talked about in the past, too, is is, is vaccine shopping. Is, is that becoming a reality now? I guess from the comments you're hearing from some of your members, it is. I think so. I think the, the concern is certainly there. Um, we are looking at this as a two-prong approach. One, we do need to replenish with AstraZeneca for those that want the second dose. And the second part of that is, uh, you know, waiting for guidance um, based on research that's being done in the UK, 
uh, and elsewhere on the efficacy and safety of mixing doses. So putting in uh, uh, an mRNA vaccine when you've already had a viral vector like AstraZeneca. So that could change uh, in terms of both the supply availability and the time duration between getting your first and second as well as uh, giving options. Let's talk about the registration, uh, because I'm getting a lot of mixed messaging and a lot of people that, frankly, are confused by the government protocol, not the pharmaceutical protocol, uh, about, first of all, booking second doses and even booking a first dose in situations like that. Now, the understanding I have, Justin, is this program expands into even more pharmacies uh, across the province, and especially in the hotspots, uh, that the, 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 the pharmacies themselves are going to be doing the booking of appointments as opposed to having to go through the government website. Is that, is that your understanding? Yes, that's the way it has been since we launched in early March. The government made a decision not to permit pharmacies to be able to use the central booking system. Um, even some of the PHUs have developed their own. So I don't know if there is a single system now that's out there. But uh, certainly what we have done is offered online booking through each of the participating pharmacies' websites. Um, we have since introduced uh, walk-ins where it's appropriate and it suits the circumstances to make sure that we don't reduce or waste any uh, doses, as well as uh, the traditional way of calling a, a pharmacy. Do you find this to be a less cumbersome idea? Because, I mean, the biggest concern I've heard from people was dealing through the government websites. It was it was problematic, hard to navigate through this. I mean, a lot easier to, to go through a pharmacy, as, as we've talked about in the past. Most people have a comfort level with their pharmacy anyway. It can be. I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both scenarios, to be honest. Um, you know, we looked at um, giving flexibility and leveraging what pharmacies already have uh, to quickly mobilize and focus on getting shots in arms. Uh, we already have to use the COVAX ON system to input all of the data. As that's the um, record of proof, if you will, for vaccinations and where all of the uh, information is logged. So we wanted to reduce some of the administrative burden um, I, I think at the end of the day, giving people options is always uh, advantageous. Um, I know the wait lists have been somewhat challenging for people, um, and wait lists exist because there's a lack of supply. So the more supply we have, the less we'll have to utilize wait lists, and we can get people through the pharmacy and booked uh, appointments. And and for those people that are frustrated by that, uh, is, is it reassuring now to know that, that Moderna is going to be on, and, and of course, obviously, the Pfizer situation in the, in the pharmacies as well, uh, to try to alleviate some of that, uh, that, that wait time and the frustration that people are feeling right now. But there's still a concern about supply chain, isn't there, and especially here in the Ontario region because of some of the hotspots? For sure, and we're still um, working with the strategy of directing 50% of the vaccine supply into the hotspot regions, focusing in on the hardest hit uh, areas, um, and this will help uh, adding more access through pharmacies. Obviously, there's also pop-up clinics that complement that um, and going in to vaccinate uh, high-risk individuals those that are essential workers. I think it's great news that we have uh, now put the threshold of criteria to 18 plus um, in the hotspots because a lot of those are the people that can't stay at home that are going into work and, and putting themselves and others at risk. Yeah, and it's something that should have happened a long time ago. It always begs the question, why weren't the pharmacies in on the initial stages of this? But uh, we can't go back. We've got to move forward with what we've got here in situations. Uh, what about the second doses, Justin? There's an awful lot of talk about getting as many arms as, as we can you know, with that first vaccine, and, and obviously that's got to be the primary goal at this stage. Uh, but I'm getting a lot of people, and I'm sure your members are too, about uh, asking about, well, what about that second dose? Now, some of them I, I know have already got it booked. When you got the first one, they gave you a date some months down the road when the, to get the second. A lot didn't, though, and this specifically with a group that I'm hearing from, uh, you may recall at the end of March, uh, there was a, a, a kind of a change in the in the protocol with uh, the uh, AstraZeneca, and they said, look, at you know, we, we anybody that's, uh, I think it was uh, 50 to 60 or whatever, I can't remember what the criteria was, you can get that. And a lot of people did, but they didn't get a second uh date now for the for the second shot how do they how do they approach that do they, do they go back to the same pharmacy they went to for the first one yeah the guidance is to book the second appointment with the pharmacy that uh, you received the first dose uh, from and uh, in cases where you didn't walk out of the pharmacy with an appointment the pharmacy will follow up and schedule that no one's going to be left behind without getting a second dose of course as the uh, guidelines and, uh, and the protocols evolve as we're seeing with the different age restrictions um, and different uh, potentially of mixing of doses that could change which vaccine you get but uh, at the end of the day we're going to make sure everybody that has received a vaccine gets fully vaccinated 
The other thing that's been, you know, I think, controversial from the start uh, with the guidelines around up to 16 weeks booking um, the second appointment. And now we're starting to see with more vaccine coming in, uh, that uh, loosen up. And you're seeing already exceptions that exist for transplant patients and for those that are on chemotherapy, as an example, to get an earlier second dose. And now um, we are seeing later this week, high-risk healthcare workers will be eligible for a shortened dosing schedule, as well as those in um, high-risk health conditions, such as dementia, diabetes, sickle cell disease, and so forth. So I think you're going to see more of that because the original plan was to try to get as many first-dose shots in arms as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're at a tipping point, uh, and, and I think that's critical as well to get more fully vaccinated people. Now, now we know the second doses. We, I mean, we know the frontline workers and, and, of course, people in long-term care facilities, uh, most have received that second dose. Uh, is there going to be a big push, as there was for the first one, to, to get that second dose? We're not hearing a whole lot about that, but is that going on right now? It is, and that's the, the importance here of making sure that we have um, herd immunity is that we have to achieve that second dose, the full immunization. You know, and I think you and I have talked in the past about the need likely for booster uh, vaccines, yeah. uh, probably on a seasonal basis, dealing with the different variants that uh, are emerging across the uh, globe. So this is uh, something we're going to have to normalize and have a long-term plan in terms of vaccine distribution. But it is really important everybody gets the, the second dose for full immunity. It's starting to look as if we're really leaning in that direction, isn't it, Justin? I know we had talked about that almost in a speculative way a couple of weeks ago, but some of the research that was released this past weekend uh, seems to indicate that the, that the experts are pretty much assured of the fact that this is never going to go away altogether. And we may, in fact, as we do with the flu shot, just have to get a shot probably every season. And, and that shot, I guess, like the flu shot, is going to vary depending on what strain they see coming forward. It's, it's, it's going to be a new routine for us, I guess. It's highly likely that that's the scenario, and we're learning more and more as evidence becomes available and we learn more about this uh, virus, but but certainly that's uh, highly likely, and that's why we need to plan for a more sustainable vaccination distribution model because we can't just operate mass immunization clinics and pop-ups in the long term. So I think pharmacy and and primary care will be a part of that as they are with the flu vaccine every uh, flu season. Justin, there's always kind of a concern about the uptake on the flu vaccine. A lot of people think, ah, well, you don't want to bother with that. Uh, obviously, that attitude has changed about COVID, and we're seeing, a, I think, a, a great response uh, to, the, to the vaccination program with COVID. Do you anticipate that those numbers are going to remain as high if this becomes a seasonal thing? It will be interesting to see if what we saw was an anomaly this flu season where we had the highest rate of uh, immunizations in the history of the flu program in Ontario uh, or or whether that will sustain uh, year over year. I I think you will see more and more acceptance of uh, the importance and value of, uh, of getting vaccinated largely because of this pandemic. Nobody wants to return to uh, the situation that we're in now. Um, And I think the more we can provide confidence in the safety and efficacy of these vaccines, then uh, certainly that will go a long way. But we are seeing gaps in other areas. So childhood and adult routine immunizations are way down. Uh, The gap is about 40% of people that would normally get these, uh, like tetanus shot as an example. Uh, But because of the pandemic and the focus on the COVID vaccine, they're not getting those shots. So we could see, you know, a measles outbreak or other types of outbreaks as a public health crisis because of this. So there's, you know, it's on both sides of that poll where we, we are definitely going to be challenged. I got an email from one of our listeners here, just as you and I are having this discussion, Justin, from Heather, asking, should we be concerned about interaction with the vaccine and other medications that uh, that we may be on? Uh, valid question, I guess. There's an awful lot of people that have the, you know, the pill packs and everything else. And uh, is, is, is the vaccine act, acting independently of that, or is there a concern about what might happen depending on the medications you're on? You should always talk to your healthcare professional to ensure that they have a full picture of all of the medications that you're on. The value of pharmacists is they know their patients and they know exactly what medications they're taking. Uh, and they will counsel uh, patients if there's any potential for an adverse reaction. But by and large, these vaccines do not react um, in a negative way with uh, routine medications. But it is good uh, counsel to always check uh, beforehand. 
You mentioned about the, the possibility that uh, that there may be a mixing, I guess, of, of some of the vaccines. Somebody who got their first shot of AstraZeneca uh, may, in fact, get Moderna as a second shot. Uh, is that going on? I mean, there are other countries, of course, that are a little ahead of us, some a lot ahead of us, of course, in the vaccine roll-up program. Uh, the U.K. comes to mind right off the bat in Israel and places like that. Have they tried that, Justin? Have, is, is that something that's going on in those jurisdictions? Actually, that's a great question whether they're actually doing it. I know they're researching it. Uh, yeah. There's a paper about to be published in the UK uh, looking at the uh, efficacy of, uh, you know, is there, is there any impact to switching in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccine uh, against preventing serious or mild symptoms and, um, and, and whether it's safe or not. And thus far, everything I've seen and read is indicating that it is as safe um, and uh, as effective. And I think they looked at uh, AstraZeneca to Pfizer specifically. So um, I think you're going to see that. I, I, you know, we're, we're encouraged by that. I think it's important uh, as part of making sure everybody gets the second dose because in the U.S. we're starting to see people drop off and getting vaccinated on their first dose uh, as you hit that uh, threshold of a certain uh, number of people in the population getting it and, and those that are not adhering to the second dose. Um, and it is challenging. Anytime you have to have someone to come back in, uh, there's the risk that they don't. Is, is there a concern about, about the vaccine production over the long haul? I mean, you know, we've, we're talking about the, the big ones, of course, Pfizer and, and AstraZeneca and Moderna, uh, Johnson & Johnson. There still seem to be some questions about. But we're told that there's research going on with others as well. As In the progression of time, are we going to see some of these places drop out or some of these companies drop out because it's it's less popular uh, in, 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 the, in the greater scheme of things? Or are we just going to see more and more there, giving, uh, I guess, uh, we the consumers more charge? More choice. Mm-hmm. Well, the the discussions in the U.S. Uh, and, and similar discussions in Canada around breaking uh, the patent, the IP patent, yeah. so that there could be more uh, alternatives, and I think that will accelerate some of the production as multiple manufacturers get involved. And we see that um, in other areas of medication management as well. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how that's going to evolve, but I think one of the learnings out of the pandemic from a Canadian perspective is that. We need to increase our domestic production capacity. We are quite vulnerable and at risk with our supply chain. The recent events and unfortunate situation in India really underscore that vulnerability because much of the active product product ingredients in most medications is sourced from India uh, and manufactured in India. So when uh, you have issues like global pandemics, you can see where vaccines could potentially be directed elsewhere and for good reason. So I think that is one area. You know, we have manufacturing in Canada, but it has over the uh, years, it has dwindled um, and moved uh, globally. How difficult is it going to be to ramp that up? I mean, there was an announcement a couple of weeks ago, of course, in the GTA, I guess the old Connaught uh, situation, the laboratories are going to start doing something like this. But you, you can't just flick a switch and have this happen. It's going to take some time, isn't it? It's going to take some thoughtful uh, policy decisions and discussions over the next while about making the right investments, strategic investments in our supply chain from manufacturing through wholesale to to the delivery of these vaccines. And if we are really serious about increasing our domestic capacity, then that's what it's going to take at a federal and, and provincial level, whether that's through incentives, um, looking at the model of Canada in terms of uh, pricing, uh, making it fair and reasonable so that manufacturers um, look at the small marketplace as an opportunity and not necessarily uh, against some of the other markets in the in the global economy. So, you know, there's many considerations. That's a complex ecosystem, but I think those are the kinds of conversations that need to be uh, undertaken. And, of course, as you mentioned, a lot of this is going to hinge on the discussion, uh, the debate, really, about patents and what's going to be happening, and that's uh, still to be determined. Uh, Justin, uh, congratulations again, and great thanks to all of you members for the great work that they're doing here to try to get the the vaccines out there to the public and and going out to the public now with some of these pharmacies. Uh, We'll stay in touch as this rolls out over the next little while, but uh, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Likewise, you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Justin Bates, of course, the CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, And there you go. I mean, the takeaway there is if you have not even received your first shot yet, uh, call your pharmacy and you can can register right there. Uh, One PS to that, though, because we're starting to see a problem here that I, I hope doesn't become a large problem. If you are booked for another place... Uh, and, and you're waiting and waiting, and you say, well, heck with it, I'm going to go to the pharmacy. If you get that one, 
cancel the other appointment because there are an awful lot of spaces that are being taken up, apparently by people that have already made appointments and, and made arrangements someplace else. And, and that's a waste of time and a waste of space. And that, that's one other person that could have been vaccinated that didn't get the opportunity. So keep that in mind, all right? If, the, if you cancel that one or if you get a better one, uh, cancel the one that you had initially, okay? Just for the sake of convenience for everybody else. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As anticipated, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff finally did appear uh, before a parliamentary committee. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Chief of Staff says that she had asked herself in recent months whether she could have done more to fight sexual misconduct in Canada's armed forces. But Katie Telford didn't answer one of the main questions parliamentarians wanted to hear. Stephanie Taylor tells us. Who made the decision not to tell the Prime Minister? Telford was pressed repeatedly by MPs on how Trudeau was left in the dark about a complaint against retired General Jonathan Vance. Trudeau has said while his office knew of a complaint, he wasn't personally aware until earlier this year when it was made public. Telford says when in 2018 she learned there was an issue involving Vance, she took it seriously but didn't know the nature of the complaint. She says she asked whether safety was a concern because without information, it was possible the allegation was sexual. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, the concern here is, did, uh, did Ms. Telford's testimony on Friday actually clarify some things or ask more questions of it? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Danielle Beyland, who is a James McGill Professor of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on the program today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. The uh, the way that it's described, and I'll just try to do the, the, the Coles Notes version of this from uh, Ms. Telford, seemed to be that, yes, she was aware of this, but it's not the, the Prime Minister's job to fix this or to look after this. Uh, it's the Privy Council, so that's why she never told the, the Prime Minister. That's, that's her testimony. Does that sound plausible to you? Yeah, I think that her, the testimony was quite quite long, and she uh, she dodged questions quite a few times, but in the end she... She did provide a rational for why she didn't tell the Prime Minister. She had a conversation with uh, Michael Warnick, who at the time was the, the clerk of the Privy uh, Council office, and he told her that politicians should not get involved in this, that this was a matter in the hands of uh, uh, professional civil servants, and that um, it was the right thing to do to just uh, let them do their work. So I think it's, it's a plausible uh, explanation uh, from that perspective. And at the time, I think her argument or claim that she didn't know exactly what the nature of uh, this investigation was about. And, 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 and so there's still a lot of frog here. <laughs> there's still a lot of unanswered questions about uh, what, um, what exactly happened. Uh, that was in, um, uh, in uh, March, early March of 2018. I don't think the testimony... Uh, answered all the questions that the opposition had, that's for sure. Well, it certainly raised some issues, didn't it? I mean, yeah. especially when she said that she referred it to, to Michael Warnick, who was, as you mentioned, the, the clerk of the Privy Council. Uh, if that name sounds familiar to our listeners, uh, Mr. Warnick was the uh, chief, of course, who gave some, shall we say, rather dubious advice about how to handle the SNC-Lavalin file uh, when he was uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, too. So I'm sure there were more than a few people that were rolling their eyes when they heard that name come up again. Uh, but to that end, though, when you look at the way this rolled out, though, Danielle, as, as the chief of staff, even... If, if Katie Telford is saying this is the way it was supposed to be, so this is what I did, being the inquisitive individual, being the chief of staff, would it not have behooved her to actually say, maybe I better find out more about this before I make that decision? Yes, absolutely. As I said, there are still unanswered questions, and she was, uh, um, let's say, very, of course, careful and during her testimony, and, uh, and as I said, she dodged quite a few uh, questions. I think that uh, we have to understand, too, that uh, earlier this year, um, the Minister of Defense, so Arjit Sajjan, uh, did testify about the, the same issue, and um, he, um, he also uh, dodged quite a few questions, but he was very firm, saying that, you know, that this was, um, there is a, a system in place, and that as a politician, he could not get involved in, in the file, and even, he could not, he should not even... Uh, you know, I've tried to know more about the allegation at the time to let civil servants do their work. So um, I think that there are, there is obviously uh, the, the same message coming from uh, Katie uh, Telford. But yeah, it's a bit puzzling that uh, she didn't uh, um, she didn't do more with this because she's uh, obviously 
the, the closest advisor to the Prime Minister. People have to understand who Katie Telford is. Uh, these are people who normally live in the, in the, uh, the shadow, uh, but uh, we have heard her name many times before. She was with Justin Trudeau when he decided to, uh, to launch his uh, leadership bid in 2012 with uh, Gerald Butts, a name that people also know, mm-hmm. who resigned in the aftermath of the SNC-Lavalin affair. She, was, you know, she has been the main advisor, political advisor of the prime minister. So the, the, her testimony is important, too, because she's uh, an obvious target for the opposition. And actually, conservatives uh, uh, try to uh, have a vote on uh, you know, having her resign. And, and if they could, of course, get rid of her, then after Gerald Box, that will be another uh, strike um, uh, for, for, um, for, for the liberals. So I think Katie, Tel- you know, Katie Telford is a very, a very important person in the environment and the entourage of the, uh, of the prime minister. And, and I think that uh, she was on the hot seat on Friday, and there are still a lot of unanswered questions. So I don't think it's good for, for the, the government. This is not a new scenario, though, is it, Professor? I mean, I, as, as I was going over the testimony over the weekend, what uh, Ms. Telfer was saying, it, it reminded me very much of, uh, let's go back a few years, the Senate expense, uh, expense scandal that was going on with Mike Duffy and, and Pamela Wallen, et cetera, et cetera, especially with Duffy. Uh, and we were supposed to believe, or led to believe at that point, that Stephen Harper's chief of staff knew all about this, actually wrote a check, and never told the prime minister about it. And, and it, it comes down to credibility in, in, with yeah. this kind of testimony, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, and that normally you don't want these people to testify, right? Because, again, they are political advisors. They should not be at the front stage. They are backstage people. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and that certainly is an issue uh, for, for the prime minister, someone so close to him, uh, cl- closer to him than any of his ministers, uh, of his cabinet ministers. Uh, possibly, uh, and and that's why also that uh, it was a, a great moment for the opposition, especially the conservatives, uh, to have her testify and asking her questions that she dodged, and so that that um, really didn't cast a very positive light on uh, on not just on her but on on the entire government. Uh, of course, the opposition they want this to last. You know, they they were quite successful um, and they gained some points in the polls after the. Uh, in the aftermath of the, um, the wheat charity uh, affair, and before that, of course, when the liberals had the majority government during the SNC-Lavalin affair, and when they have people like Gerald Botts in the past or Katie Telford in the past and now testifying, for them, it, 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 it really draws attention on this issue, and it makes it stay on the agenda longer, and, 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 and that's something that they want, especially with the prospect of having maybe, a, a, you know, elections in the fall. Uh, they want people to s- still uh, keep talking about this. Why? Because it's a major issue uh, uh, about gender, right? When we talk about uh, sexual uh, misconduct and sexual harassment in uh, the Canadian Armed Forces, you have a lot of allegations. Marie Deschamps published, I mean, there was a report that was commissioned by the Harper government and was, um, was issued on, on March uh, 27, 2015, if people Google Marie Deschamps uh, report, they can read the report. It's still online with very clear recommendations about what to do. There are 10 recommendations, very straightforward. And most of this report uh, uh, has yet to be implemented. And now they, 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 uh, they have a new former, because Marie Deschamps is a former justice, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, and now they, 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 they went uh, with another former justice, Louise Arbeau, and recently in April asked her to look into this again and report again about this. But there is a lot of knowledge that we have about this already. So the question is to know why is, is it taking so much time to address the issue? Because beyond the, the, you know, what's happening with Jonathan Vance and these allegations and so forth, there is the bigger picture and the bigger issue of how to address uh, uh, sexual misconduct within the armed forces. And this uh, issue has not been solved yet, and the Liberals have uh, uh, been in power since late 2015, and they are still struggling with this issue. Well, exactly, and, and, and that's, I think, why people are getting so skeptical about this whole situation. I mean, uh, one of the pundits, uh, I think rather sarcastically, uh, su- submitted that what uh, Justice Arbour should probably do is just staple her name onto the front of Ma- Madame Deschamps' report, because it's basically the same thing, and nothing's been done in the last six years. Uh, I'm hoping it's, that's, that's not the case in situations like this. But it's the contradictory testimony that's going on. You know, that uh, Ms. Telford uh, has said on Friday, of course, that she didn't pursue this. She didn't ask what kind of allegations 
Russians were actually there. But the previous testimony from uh, Gary Walburn, who's the former military ombudsman, said that when he brought this forward, he told her it was about sexual misconduct. So, you know, you've got to weigh one against the other and say, well, wait a second here, where, where's the truth here? Absolutely, and, and uh, in his testimony, Arjit Sajan, so the defense minister, because it's his file, right? I mean, yeah. Katie Telford is the you know chief of staff uh, of the prime minister. She's within the, the 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 PMO, but the file is 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 the defense minister's file. And and uh, in his in his testimony, Gary Walburn also said that Arjit uh, Sajan uh, knew about it. That uh, and 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 so now there is a problem too because it's not just. So his testimony is contradicted by the testimony of both the Minister of Defense and, um, and Katie Telford. So there, who, who, do we, who do we trust? Who do we, be, you know, who do we believe here? I'm, I'm, you know, this is, uh, this is pretty confusing for the public. But that's why I said I think, you know, this is, you know, he said, she said, and so forth. And I think the public is confused about this. But this is a distraction because the main issue is to implement the recommendations of the Deschamps report, and the government has failed to do that. Why? There is certainly resistance within the military. There are other issues as well, legal issues, institutional issues. But I think that the, the government should be more, more forthcoming uh, about this. Um, and and, and I, I'm curious to see what Louise Arbour will do. Like she said to the media you know, when she was appointed that she will make sure that her recommendations are implemented as opposed to uh, Marie Deschamps' report, which is almost six years old now, uh, which is uh, six years old, actually, or five years old, whatever, uh, March 2015. Um, that's actually a very long time ago. And, and the fact that so little has been implemented is, is really a problem. And, um, and that could come to haunt the liberals during the next uh, federal campaign. But of course, right now, people are mainly, you know, talking about the pandemic and the economy. So uh, for many people, this is a sideshow. But these testimonies don't help the, the government because they don't want, um, they don't want people and journalists and, and the opposition to talk about this. They want to focus on the vaccination process. Things are improving on the ground. People are be becoming more helpful. So the opposition, they want to keep this story alive. Uh, uh, to like they try to keep the We Charity affair alive as long as possible to hurt the government. But in the end, there is a serious policy issue here, because if you read the, the Deschamps report, already five years ago or six years ago, it was clear that, uh, um, you know, there, there was under-reporting, serious under-reporting of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment in, in the Canadian Armed Forces. This is documented in the report, and, and, and the, there is no evidence that this has changed or significantly improved since then. So um, I think it's time for action. Well, especially, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with the defense minister, quite aside from what happened in the prime minister's office, and, and, and I think there's still, as you mentioned, a lot of questions about that. But for Minister Sajan, when, when Welburn approached him and with this, what, what we're told is the minister basically said, don't even tell me about this. Uh, I don't want to know because it's not within my purview. This is the defense minister, and if somebody comes forward and says, your chief of military staff, the guy that, you know, you're the second in command, essentially, the number one command for the military, uh, has a, sexual allegations against him, the minister is, is saying, I don't want to know about this, I don't want to hear about this, that's incredulous. Yes, this is, uh, th this is really... Uh uh, problematic to say the least, and um, and you know he was very when you listen if you go back to listen to the testimony again he was very firm about this like he had no doubt he could not you know he told him I don't want to hear about this uh, altogether um, now should we believe him I think there are quite a few people who are skeptical. Well, therein lies the problem. I mean, even if he does say yes, we need to refer this to the Privy Council. I can't believe that a minister is not going to at least want to know the details about this, about how severe this actually was. And, and I guess what exacerbates that, uh, as you know, Professor, is that uh, in the interim period after these allegations were made, and, and both Ms. Telford and apparently the, the defense minister knew about them, uh, in, in their job evaluations, he actually gave Vance a raise and said, you know, you're doing a great job. I, we, that sends a message, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, this is, this is uh, strange. But again, it's part of a broader story. And we should not forget the, this broader story. But Mr. Uh, Minister Sajan, uh, Arjit Sajan, you know, has been defense minister since the very beginning of the liberal government uh, in, in late uh, 2015. So, uh, and, and, and I think that, that uh, um, he should take responsibility for the fact that, you know, the Deschamps report has not been fully implemented yet. 
Uh, and I think that this is the bigger issue to me and the issue we should always return to. Not forget, you know, uh, not lose sight of what the, the goal is, is to actually fight sexual misconduct and sexual harassment in the Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, what Marie Deschamps suggested is having a, an independent center where people can complain and it would be uh, people could their complaints will be then, you know, acted upon. And that's not what we have now. And, and she recommended that so many years ago. Uh, why is it still not the case that we have this policy, which makes a lot of sense when we think about it, right? Uh, because there is a serious problem of underreporting of uh, sexual misconduct within the, the, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. So um, why these delays? I think we need a clearer answer. And hopefully, I mean, I'm still hopeful that Louise Harbour will actually uh, press, push the government to act. Uh, but this is just more delays and delays, right? And, and uh, how long should, um, uh, should uh, people who exper- experience uh, um, uh, these issues, uh, sexual harassment and misconduct, wait to, to get this problem addressed in a, in a compelling manner? Well, and that is, I, I agree with you totally, that's the tragedy here, is that uh, the opposition parties are making this a political thing, and as they do, I guess you expect that to happen, uh, but they should be focusing on the fact that the, the implementation of, of Madame Deschamps' uh, report has not happened, and, and there's an awful lot of people in the military right now, victims, uh, that won't come forward and are reticent to come forward because they don't believe in the system, and, and that's the greater tragedy right now. Uh, more to come on this, obviously, in the days and weeks ahead, Professor. Always a pleasure to get your perspective. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's uh, Professor Daniel Beland, of course, from McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's happening in the here and now and an awful lot of frustration about some of the lockdown order and implications here in the province of Ontario. As we know, the current stay-at-home order in Ontario is set to expire 10 days from now, May 20th. And many people, golfers especially, are hoping that at that point the province is going to loosen some of the pandemic restrictions. Now, the measures, as we all know now, were originally implemented back in April due to the surging infection rates and overwhelming ICU capacities. Very valid reasons. But as Global's Darren Boland explains, those measures probably going to stay in place at least for the next little while. In a new report from the Toronto Star, the province now says the stay-at-home order will be extended until at least June 2nd, with golf courses to remain closed until that date as well. Additionally, the province's COVID-19 science table is recommending that those restrictions should remain in place until daily case rates in the province drop below 1,000. As of Friday, Ontario reported more than 3,100 new daily cases and 23 more deaths. But it appears the province's decision to keep golf courses closed on top of extending the stay-at-home order has some MPP from the Ontario PC party up in arms. Also, after releasing a new ad campaign criticizing the federal liberals for failing to tighten down measures at the border, one PC MPP notes you can't do that while loosening provincial measures at the same time. Darren Boland, Global News. So, mass confusion? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? You know, what does this one mean? What about this one? Is, uh, is that contradicting? And on and on it goes. But I want to talk specifically about the outdoor activities uh, because the Canadian Pediatric Society has weighed in on, on some of the, the, the four government's ideas here about what a lockdown actually means and joining us to talk about this is our uh, good friend uh, greg brady it's time for our, our monday sound off here greg of course is the host of the greg brady show uh saturdays on our sister station in toronto uh, global news 640 in toronto hope you had a good weekend my friend oh yeah i mean out uh you know weeding wandering around the house uh, you didn't go you off know, the property it's, it's though did you be, it's good to be anywhere um, who's kidding who in this province yeah you, just just as long as you didn't go over the property line because you know we <laughs> are in a lockdown here greg don't ever forget that okay i am uh no i i look both ways not before crossing the street but before running to my mailbox that's when i look both ways and and the kids of course getting very frustrated because they can ride their bikes but only on the driveway right uh, it's a, it's quite a small circle. They're definitely wearing out. Uh, they're they're wearing out their tread on the tires at just within a, about a eighty foot radius of the home. I'm. It's the it's the most difficult thing to push them outside and say go do this, go do that when you could strap them in the car before and take them places to do those things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the letter from the Pediatric Society, and, and I do want to explain this to the golf courses in a second, but let's deal with this first, uh, because these are the medical experts that the Premier says he wants to listen to, and he's told us uh, every day at one thirty when he's doing these media conferences, Greg, that I listen to the medical advice. Well, here's the P- Pediatric Society saying, look, this idea about closing playgrounds and closing uh, you know, baseball diamonds and soccer pitches, dumb really dumb even if they're going to continue the lockdown and it looks like that's the case these doctors 
these children specialists are urging the province to say, open this up again, even during a lockdown. We need to get outside. We need to exercise. Yeah, I, I you know, you mentioned that off the top, and I hear that report by Darren, and I just, like, the, the phrase, uh, and I think it's an overused phrase probably in, in what we do and certainly in politics, false equivalency like yeah. it is it is shocking how many uh there are in terms of uh the, the lockdowns these were these are our politicians and a government that said the schools were safe four and a half weeks ago and what happens in school every day well not only do you eat a you know at elementary school at the minimum you eat a meal every day for 25 minutes in a in a classroom maybe there's 18 kids in the classroom but maybe there's 26 but you are outside. You're outside for a couple 15-minute re- – we all remember the drill. A couple 15-minute recesses a day, uh, about 45 minutes after you eat lunch, and you're outdoors, um, even even without masks. And the kids are missing that right now, to be honest, perfectly locked down. Like I said, it is a struggle. Every parent of, of kids 5 to 15 knows exactly what I'm talking about right now, um, that, that, you know, you really got to push. And what I worry about the most, Bill, is, is in that pediatric uh, study – is we're, we're, we're talking about the practicality of exercise and fresh air and, and that camaraderie when they see their friends and other kids and whatnot. But we're not even talking about the fear that, that was created. There's no question in my mind, anecdotally, when I go for a walk where I am, and I'm not in a busy area, if I was walking down, you know, the busiest street in Hamilton or the busiest street in Toronto, maybe I would wear a mask. Maybe I would. But here I don't, but I see kids that parents have put masks on, and I don't know their circumstance, and it's not for me to judge, but anecdotally, way, way more kids are wearing masks. Is that because the parents are fearful of the outdoors? Is that because the kids are? That's, the bit, that's one of the greatest shames of all in the last month. Well, it is, and I see the same sort of thing in our neighborhood as well, and I, I, I'm questioning exactly what's going on. But, you know, the Pediatric Society, in their letter anyway, uh, they talk about anxiety. And, and, and by the way, you know, anybody who says, well, come on, they, they're little kids, they don't get anxiety. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they uh, do. And as, as a parent, you know that. They, they may not manifest itself in the way that we would as adults because uh, they maybe can't articulate it or express their feelings in that way. But frustration, anxiety, uh, stress, uh, they're talking about eating disorders now. Kids aren't sleeping properly. They're not eating properly. Uh, we know already what the Kids Helpline, of course, has had a 400% increase in usage uh, since the pandemic started. And what these doctors are saying is because they have to exercise and get out and get fresh air, you can't let these kids stay within four walls and say that everything is all right, because it's not. And they're saying, and, and this is what I found interesting, a very interesting twist to this, Greg. They're saying, continue the lockdown. They're, they're you know, yeah, do it till the, the June, as we just heard from Darren. But still let them go out and play ball let them go out and play soccer you know let them uh, well with the adults yeah. play golf and it's not just to alleviate the stress it's physical exercise and they, everybody will tell you every expert we talked to in this program will tell you that physical exercise is one of the main ways to hold off these stressful situations that are starting to to, to affect more and more people bingo there's there's no and there is no doctor that the premier or uh anyone else is listening to that would contradict that. His own science table, uh, Peter Juni, others that are on it, contradicted it the day that those restrictions came down three Fridays ago, saying, no, 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 we told them just the opposite, that people need to be outside. In Alberta, they're getting, you know, they're behind the times a little bit here, and they're getting very strict, but they're encouraging people to be outside. They're seeing the curve flatten in, in, in British Columbia, where the new variants, um, you know, there was that the, the story about the Vancouver Canucks and some ski hills. The, the new variants, I have two friends anecdotally that, that, you know, the new variants, they're healthy guys in their late 40s, early 50s, and, and they got COVID, and it, it floored them for five or six days. But the government in B.C., Premier Horgan has said, get out there, go to Stanley Park, keep you know, again, keep those protocols in place. And you're right, Bill. I, listen, some of what the province laid down was necessary. It was late. But I approve of it. It was necessary. Mm-hmm. Close businesses that have uh, an, an outbreak in more than five cases. Do what you can to keep people um, encouraged and, and yet separate on, on public transit. But there were two nights last week um, when the weather got better that I thought to myself, there is no, no reason whatsoever that um, a, a baseball practice shouldn't be happening right now, a soccer practice. Um, you know, because, again, they're not getting their phys ed via school and you mentioned the fear factor earlier on, um, like what you stay afraid of to me as adults is probably something that happened to you as a kid. Maybe it's a roller coaster. Maybe it's maybe it's an, you got stuck in an elevator. Maybe it's a it's a snake or something in the water. And you'll keep those. You'll keep those. You'll laugh. You'll laugh at a cocktail party and say, well, I'm afraid of this. And you might be the only one. 
but I'm wor- I'm really worried about the impact. Yeah, and we've heard the government say, "Well, kids, they got to be in school." Mental health, mental health. I haven't heard one word. I haven't heard that phrase from the premier. I don't hear it from the health minister. I don't hear it um, from this government right now that they're terribly concerned about the mental health of kids. But it sure was the be all and end all when they wanted to keep schools open. There's a phrase in the letter that they sent, because we got a copy of the letter, uh, that I find very interesting, and, and I think it's very instructive, too, because uh, th- they're encouraging the, you know, the, the Premier to, to lift this order and let them go play ball and things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- and they say, unless, of course, you have data that show that these places are actually where the virus is spreading. And, and the, the hook there is there is no data. They know that. No. that basically, it was, I think it's, it's, it's a dig at the Premier to say, show us that, as we have with so many other things. Uh, and, for instance, I mean, you mentioned about the, you know, the, 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 the spread in the, the ski resorts out in B.C. The, the spread was in the ski resorts. It was not on the hills. It's when they get off the hills and they yeah. all go in. There's 600 of them in there having a beer or a sandwich or whatever it is. And, and for instance, in Ontario, uh, when they finally lifted that, I mean, places like Blue Mountain and, and, and Moonstone and all these other places, they just said, come use the hill, but you can't go in the buildings. And guess what? No cases. See, same thing happens. You know, uh, it's 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 the crowding indoors that causes all these things, and and they're conflating those two statistics to try to justify what they're doing, and it's just plain wrong. Yeah, it, it, we were the only province to close up ski hills, um, and when I drop my kids off for skiing or snowboarding, they just they've just taken it up in the last um, two or three years, and um, there you are absolutely limited. They're not selling food inside. Uh, washrooms are almost off limits. Only, you know, there, there just isn't a gathering inside. You're, it's almost outside, outdoors exclusively at those at those ski hills and snowboard hills that open up. So, so yeah, I, I think about this right now with all the options that at least would be available and and are available in in all fifty states and every other single province, no matter how the cases are. They're having a bit of an outbreak in Nova Scotia, and yet they're not doing what we're doing. And Bill, like you know your politics, your audience knows their politics too. I, I'd, I'd ask you. I there has to be there has. I, I feel like they thought maybe, especially with golf, that they'd almost start some kind of class warfare here, and that the electorate, the sort of common man that Doug Ford appealed to in the twenty eighteen election. To get a majority, um, I, I have to believe they thought this that they could create a little bit of us against them. But I think that's backfired. First of all, that that stereotypes an, an, uh, like an old bit that golf is only played by you know a bunch of rich white guys. Yes, some rich white guys play golf, but it's a lot less expensive sport than it used to be. You can go play nine holes for twenty five bucks yeah. in the right circumstance. I played eighteen for forty bucks. I mean, what 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 are we talking about? That's a couple happy meals at McDonald's. So it's not. It's not this whole, uh, you know, uh, Ted Knight is Judge Smales and Caddyshack country club type atmosphere. People just, and, and it's the perfect sport for distancing. There's that also. Well, and that's the other thing about this too. Back last summer, if, and, and the, I know governments have short memories, but the golf courses were open for a time last summer. The clubhouses were closed for that yeah. very reason. We don't want you indoors. Uh, you know, bring your own sandwich if you want. You know, but but you can't go indoors. And it worked. So why wouldn't it work this time? It's the exact same situation. I know the case numbers are higher, but they're not coming from the recreational facilities. They're coming from people that are gathered indoors. And 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 the same doctors. And we these were all folk heroes. I mean. You mentioned Peter Uni, uh, 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 Nigel Bogosh. I mean, we've got these guys on the show on a regular basis. I mean, they're, they're on TV more than the prime minister and the premiers are these days, and we trust them. And they're the ones that are saying, do this, please, Mr. Premier. You got this one wrong. Fix it now. Right. And, and I think uh, I spoke to somebody on, on my show Saturday from the Ontario Tennis Association who was on the phone. He wouldn't say if it was with the premier himself. But, but basically, he said, when, when we from the Ontario Tennis Association talked to the government, we were making the wrong argument because we said this isn't going to lead to more cases playing tennis. As you said, there'd be days in Ontario last summer where we've got we've got 70 cases at the, across a province of 15 million people. And the golf courses were sold out from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And tennis, you couldn't, I, in my local courts, I love to play. You'd have to get there at 7.30 uh, in the morning or you wouldn't get on a court for, for a few hours. There were weights. But he said, we're making the wrong argument because we said this, you know, this isn't going to lead to more cases. And whoever, whoever it was from the province said back to them, we know that. We're well aware of that. But this is about mobility and this is about, you know, not, not giving someone an extra advantage just because they play golf or tennis. And again, if, if they think 
and and for you sports parents, uh, if they think uh, that the minivan, you know, soccer mom, soccer dad crew, they, if they think this policy was going to play right with them, it's going to backfire tremendously uh, a year from now. And you mentioned that Toronto Star article. There's MPPs quoted in there anonymously. That kind of thing wasn't happening six months ago. So the boat's starting to leak a bit, and these MPPs are seeing a dollar signs and b their gigs uh, sort of you know like 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 vanish before their eyes potentially next election they they've got to turn this and and you know what i know what will be said you know what will be said the audience knows what will be said numbers will go down and they'll say limiting mobility for some of these outdoor activities even though i could drive five minutes to a driving range and i could walk to my tennis court they'll say that mobility was a factor and it won't have made any damn difference not a no one. Not at all. And again, like I say, they'll twist facts around to try to justify this this policy, and there is no justification for it. Uh, and and I remember that you know when they made this announcement, the lockdown back in April. I, Dr. Uni was on the show the next day, mm-hmm. and, he, and you know the story now. He, I mean, he was on the verge of quitting, simply saying, "You're not listening to it." And he asked, I guess, rather rhetorically, "Who's giving these people advice because they're not listening to ours?" And that, that's a question I'd like to have an answer to because it's not the doctors; they're not saying lock down these facilities. Uh, the medical experts are not saying this uh, we have to assume based on the story that was reported in the star back in those days uh, greg that somebody around the cabinet table thought this was a good idea now i don't know who that might be uh, we can only speculate about that but it was not a medical opinion it was not an expert opinion and it was the wrong opinion yeah yeah and and there's there's a lot of that uh going around in terms of the wrong opinion and people have you know people have looked at where the united states was last summer um, it's, it's a different world there. And we're not, in terms of first doses, by the way, we're not that far behind them. Our neighbors to the west in Michigan, our neighbors to the east in, in New York State, uh, yeah, they're doing quite well. Sure they are, but, but they've got about 55 to 60 percent of people with first doses. Now they've got a lot more people with two doses, but we're, we're going to be at 50 percent of first doses and there is no guidance. And I, I lay some of this at the federal doorstep. Absolutely sure. I yep. do. Um, Dr. Tam says on the weekend, well, listen, uh, she's on that phone call Saturday, and she says, well, but don't forget, fully vaccinated people can get COVID. And I know that, and you know that, but is that the messaging? Is that the messaging? Or should you be giving guidelines as to what partially vaccinated people can do and fully vaccinated people can do? Every, nothing is 100% safe. Pneumonia, uh, like, like there's a million things that can befall you health-wise, and COVID will be one of them going forward. We know that. But there's there's got to be a way to instill. I, I'm I'm just I'm disappointed at all levels of government where we live right now for not instilling more confidence. Patrick Brown in Brampton. Uh, I wish there were 30 more of that guy because he's he's the one that's going out there and saying uh, the outdoors is safe. So like you said, Doctor Bogush, Doctor Uni, they're all saying let's get outside. And and there's only teenagers don't want to walk with their parents. Four year olds don't want to go for walks. They want to play. They want to play with other kids. They want to throw a ball around. Of course they do. Greg Brady, uh, we can do this every Monday, of course, our, uh, our sound off about what's happening, and this is a big issue, and hopefully the government's going to get the message. Uh, stay well, my friend. We'll talk again next week. Uh, once they elect you and me, Bill, to run uh, Ontario, we're in good shape. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they've got two fewer radio hosts, of course, but I think we can do the job. I do. God, God help us all if that happens, Greg. All right. <laughs> talk to you soon. Thanks, uh, Greg Brady, of course. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.